It is indeed a pleasure to have this privilege to play here for you. And we, we intend to give you a very fine program, so just settle back, relax, and enjoy the moment. 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 Hey, what's going on, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Miked Up, an unapologetic, low-country-based podcast from the Charleston Activist Network. I'm your host, Mika Gadsden, and today's episode um, is one that I'm going to use to point people in the right direction. Um, If you don't know me personally, hi, my name is Mika and I'm a bookaholic. (laughs) I am a voracious reader. I'm a lover of books. Um, I am unfaithful to books. I will start one and abruptly leave that book to join another book. (laughs) I love books, but I mention this because a lot of that interest in reading and interest in also learning my history or relearning my history from the perspective of an African-American or woman or Gullah Geechee descendant, that love has definitely filtered into my work as an activist and organizer here in South Carolina. And so a lot of the times on social media, I'll share my current book or the book that I'm, I'm obsessed with, a book that I am currently enjoying. I'll share that on Instagram and on Facebook, Twitter, and so on and so forth. I've even been privileged enough to lead discussions with authors, um, you know, here in Charleston. And so this episode is dedicated to those who have asked me time and time again, what should I be reading? What are you reading? Um, and, And while this is not my complete list at all, these are six works that I think everyone should go out and buy right now. Today's uh, episode is also going to it's going to it's going to highlight the work of black female scholarship. And so there might be a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, you're going to hear from women authors, women scholars, women historians. And I think this is where if you live in, Char- in Charleston, if you live in the South and you know that the history that we've been served as youths, as as, as shoot, <laughs> as adults, the history that we're largely served up with is sanitized, is whitewashed, right? And if you're frustrated with that and you know that you want a more accurate depiction of history, this is the episode for you, all right? So <laughs> my first selection I have not read this book yet. I have not held it in my hands yet, but it's by Stephanie E. Rogers. Excuse me. Let me let me say her. Let me give her the right respect. It's Stephanie E. Jones Rogers. I forgot the hyphen. Uh, she's the author of "They Were Her Property." And what intrigued me about uh, this author, Jones Rogers, was a couple of years ago. Um, I was just like listening to YouTube, like letting it kind of roll, letting the algorithm auto-select certain lectures for me and a lecture that was hosted by the Hammer Institute on the West Coast featured a bevy of black women scholars and thinkers but Stephanie E. Jones Rogers was one of the panelists and I heard her speak about sexual assault uh, during the time of slavery sexual assault that that enslaved women and men would endure at the hands of their masters and their mistresses and it intrigued me. I've never heard anyone talk about sexual assault consent from the perspective of the enslaved. And so right then off the bat, I was impressed. And I was so happy to see that she created another body of work that I could now jump into and learn more about the experience of the enslaved. And also a book that kind of, uh, it busts a myth or two that white women 
weren't passive actors during the time of slavery in the South. They weren't these genteel and innocent figures in our history. So take a listen to her, her scholarship. This is, um, this excerpt is taken from, uh, the U S national archives. It was a presentation, uh, where she spoke about her book. They were her property. Check it out. Two weeks ago here at the National Archives, we displayed the D.C. Emancipation Act, which ended slavery in the District of Columbia in 1862. Among the records generated as a result of this law, you'll find several references to women owners. Teresa Soffel and Elizabeth Ringgold, for example, sought compensation for their freed slaves, with Ringgold claiming that Perry Goodwin, a gift from her sister, was worth $1,500. They Were Her Property has received a number of highly favorable reviews. Rebecca Onion, writing for Slate, calls it a stunning new book. Carol Sengal of the New York Times said it is a taught and cogent corrective that examines how historians have misunderstood and misrepresented white women as reluctant actors. And in the Washington Post, Elizabeth Varon writes, Jones Rogers has provided a brilliant, innovative analysis of American slavery one that sets a new standard for scholarship on the, on the subject. Stephanie Jones Rogers is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley, where she specializes in African-American history, women's and gender history, and the history of American slavery. They Were Her Property is based on her revised dissertation, which won the Organization of American Historians Lerner Scott Prize for the best doctoral dissertation in U.S. Women's History in 2013. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Stephanie Jones Rogers. Thank you so much for that invitation. I mean, the invitation and the introduction, David, and thank you all for coming this afternoon and spending your lunchtime with me. It's truly a pleasure to be here with you today. So this is James Redpath. And in 1859, after touring the antebellum South, he attempted to explain for his readers why white Southern women opposed Southern emancipation. He believed that their sentiments were tied to a lifetime of indoctrination, reared as they were under the shadow of the peculiar institution. Slavery was, quote, incessantly praised and defended, end quote, virtually everywhere these women went, by everyone they knew, and in most of, of the publications that they read. Their consciences were thus easily perverted, Redpath argued, were never afterwards appealed to, with the result that they saw no reason to change their views. Redpath assumed that white Southern women did not know Negro slavery as it is, because their society shielded them from the, the institution's horrific realities. Insulated by Southern patriarchs, he argued, white women seldom saw slavery's, quote, most obnoxious features, end quote. They never, quote, never attend auctions, end quote. Never witness what were called examinations. Seldom, if ever, saw, quote, the Negroes lashed, end quote. More profoundly, they did not know that the interstate slave and tra trade in slaves was a gigantic commerce. Southern men revealed only the South Side view of slavery, Redpath surmised. And if the women of the South knew slavery as it is, he was convinced they would join in the protests against it. 
Red Path's assumptions represent a commonly held patriarchal view. Yet narrative sources, legal and financial documents, and military and government correspondence make it clear that white Southern women knew the most obnoxious features of slavery all too well. Slave-owning women, women not only witnessed the most brutal features of slavery, they took part in them, profited from them, and defended them. After hearing what James Redpath said about white women's relationship to slavery, we might think that white women were invisible in Southern slave markets. They are most notably absent from this painting from 1854, which depicts a very public slave auction in the city of Charleston, South Carolina. Or we might think of them as distanced from the horrors of the market, from the sales but also from the traumatic separations that came after those sales were finalized. We might think that white women and their children were merely passive observers of all this, and more profoundly, that they were powerless to stop these horrors and traumatic separations, like what you see in this image. This image is a depiction of the kind of trauma and the violence of those separations that occurred after um, a slave um, auction took place and an enslaved person was sold away from their family. And highlighted in um, the yellow box towards the left-hand side of the image, you can see um, a white woman and a child um, distanced from that, um, from that separation, distanced from that horror and that trauma, um, separated from um, and, and indirectly um, kind of um, witnessed to, but um, experiencing that, but not directly implicated in um, the violence and the trauma of the market. But this is not how enslaved and formerly enslaved people remembered things at all. First, they made it clear that white Southern women's economic relationships to slavery began in childhood, and in some cases during infancy, not just in adulthood. Fillmore Hancock, for example, told his interviewer that his grandmother, quote, was given to the missus as the, her own on the day she was born. Remarkably, Fillmore Hancock recalled that old missus was only a year old then, so his grandmother was given to, his, uh, to her mistress when she was only one, one year old. Enslaved people and formerly enslaved people talked about the lifelong processes of socialization by which white girls came to understand themselves as markedly different than enslaved people and the rituals that drove this point home for enslaved and free people alike. White slave-owning girls also made it clear that they had the power to claim other African Americans as their property when they selected specific enslaved children to serve them. When Betty Coffer was born, for example, her master's daughter, Ella, was only a little girl, but she nevertheless claimed Betty Coffer as her slave shortly after Betty was born. Absolutely remarkable. The scholarship of Jones Rogers is, is just awe-inspiring. I highly recommend that you all go out and find yourself a copy of They Were Her Property. So much of this hidden history is new to me, um, and I and I just marvel each time I encounter uh, such harrowing tales or, or specific details that really help to complicate our relationship with the history that we were presented with 
um, maybe at first at school or, or in our homes. But um, I, I love to be I love to be jolted awake and I love for my relationship with things to be complicated. So I, I invite you to to relish in that discomfort as well. The next book I want to present is from Morgan Jerkins. Uh, I first came across Morgan's work uh, when I received a book from a friend named Amber. Uh, Amber gifted me This Will Be My Undoing, which went on to be a New York Times bestseller, um, New York Times bestseller. And so now this next book from Morgan uh, is called, and I want to get the title completely right, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. And the title alone just spoke to me because, as you all know, I characterize myself, I introduce myself as a daughter of Jim Crow refugees. Both of my parents were born and raised in the South, and they migrated to the North, to New Jersey and New York, uh, in search of better economic opportunities so they can raise their families and have better jobs and have their kids go to better schools. Now, they left during the tail end, on the tail end of Jim Crow, but yet uh, the vestiges of that institution was still very much alive. And one could argue that we still are dealing with the vestiges of Jim Crow right now in South Carolina. Um, but anyway, back to Morgan's book. Morgan's book, uh, it talks about, I, from what I understand, this just re- this book was just released. I don't have a copy of it as well. This is on my wish list, along with the, the Jones Rogers book. Um, but Morgan attempts to examine her own family's roots, and, and it, took, it took her back to the South. It took her to Oklahoma, but it brought her also to South Carolina. And, and there is a shout-out uh, to the Gullah Geechee uh, portion of her life, that journey. Uh, again, I don't have the book in my hands, but I have seen some write-ups and she definitely just wrote a piece for New York, uh, the New York Times that was featured last weekend. So if you can do your Googles, do your Googles and try to find that piece from Morgan Jerkins. But here's an excerpt from her most recent book. Take a listen. I was seven years old when I learned that I wasn't my father's only daughter. He pulled me to his side and said he had something to show me. I assumed that it was a gift. He would regularly visit me at my mother's home, bringing niceties along with his charisma and swagger. Instead, he pulled out his wallet and showed me photos of three girls before saying, These are your sisters. The oldest was 11 years my senior. The middle child was 8 years my senior. And the last was just 15 months my senior. I don't remember saying anything in response. I didn't have the words to express what I felt. Later, I learned that my father not only had three other daughters, but a wife and a dog as well. They were, from all appearances, the picture-perfect family. I felt like an outsider among my blood, a feeling that would stay with me until I was an adult. My original birth certificate indicates that my story is half-missing, I was born Morgan Simone Regis Jerkins. The Simone and Regis were officially my middle names. My mother's name is Sybil Yvonne Jerkins, but there was a blank spot where my father's name should have been. My parents weren't married. In fact, when I was conceived, their relationship had already run its course. The details as to what happened are debatable, but nevertheless, there was an omission. On paper, half of my lineage is unknown, although I've known my father my entire life. When I came into this world almost a month early, 
my dad took one look at me and jokingly said, that's the milkman's baby, because I was so light. I was the lightest person in my church congregation, and people would often make jokes about my skin to my mother. They'd assume that my father was white because I burned in the sun, or they'd say whatever melanin I had would be lost in the winter. I took all the jokes in stride because I knew that I was loved nevertheless. But on the inside, I was in immense pain because I knew that in many ways, my maternal and paternal families were different with regards to their own histories. My father was born and raised in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and migrated to the North to start his own medical business. Almost 40 years and 30 offices later, he's one of the most prominent doctors in South Jersey. The resemblance between my father and me allows for locals to be able to connect the dots. There were moments in Macy's or at a doctor's office when someone would regard my face and know that I was my father's daughter. The connection would momentarily reaffirm my existence, but that feeling wouldn't last very long. I was more commonly known as Morgan Jerkins in schools and among friends. It was easier to be known this way because I was already living primarily with my mother. Throughout most of my childhood, I felt more like a Jerkins because my dad and his family were an enigma to me. Again, that was Morgan Jerkins reading from her most recent work, Wandering in Strange Lands, A Daughter of the Great Migration Reclaims Her Roots. Um, and just so you know, you can find links to all of the content featured in today's episode in the description or in the show notes of today's episode. So if there's anything you want to follow up on, make sure you check out the show notes. OK, the next book uh, is the next book recommendation and the next author I'm going to rave about is someone who is not a stranger to the podcast in terms of <laughs> in terms of me featuring her work. I wish she were a guest, but that's on that's on the list. I'm I'm manifesting this energy right now. Um but yeah, Sadia Hartman, um just a profound writer. I've elegant, um brilliant, poignant. I I don't know. I I'm not doing that well in in really adequately describing the way she writes, but I want to underscore the elegance. She's just so silky smooth in the way she really takes takes these figures and, and brings them to life. These these women that she's encountered. And, and I know I just jumped into these vague uh, descriptions, but basically I want to introduce you to one of my favorite books, which is Wayward Lives and uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments by Sadia Hartman. That's where I met the author. But she also has authored the book Lose Your Mother that I think you should put on your list as well, right? So um, I want to just let you hear from Sadia Hartman. Here she's featured in a MacArthur Fellowship clip. She is a MacArthur Fellow, and if you don't know what that is, woo, that's a huge prestigious award. And so here's Sadia Hartman talking about her work, her process, and this really interesting um this interesting mechanism that she used, that she coined, that she created called critical fabulation. Take a listen to this clip. My work explores the limits of the archive and it's involved in this dance and trying to understand and to mine every detail about the lives of the enslaved, about the lives of free black people. I'm Saidia Hartman and I am a writer 
and a cultural historian. What motivates my work is writing about the lives of those who are unknown, dispossessed, exploited, disposable, and I guess what motivates me are the surprises in the archive, the complexity and the wonder of these lives that have largely left few traces. When I began my dissertation, I was actually writing a project about black music. I was reading a history of a bluesman, and he said, if you want to understand the blues, you have to understand what it was like to plow a field in Mississippi. Once I started to read about slavery and to read those narratives, it changed the course of my project. We can't actually understand the lives of black folks in the U.S. today, the precarity of those lives, without taking into account slavery and its legacy. One of the chapters of Lose Your Mother that's described the dead book, I describe the experience of a young enslaved girl aboard a slave ship. The only thing said about the girl in the trial were four words, the said Negro girl. And I thought, how do I begin to tell her story? How can I reconstruct the terms of her experience aboard the slave ship I utilize the various versions of the legal case, as well as newspaper accounts, to tell the story from a range of perspectives. Venus in Two Acts is where I coined the term critical fabulation to describe my practice. Critical fabulation was central to being able to resurrect forgotten history, lost lives, the millions of stories that were lost in the Middle Passage. In the book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, it tells the story of young black women who are involved in the search for freedom, imagining what a beautiful life can be as the black ghetto is emerging and the dreams of the city, what the city could be, what it might be, are being radically restricted. I'm working on several projects now. One is an essay about narrative and the archive. Another is a photo text about black life. And the third project is a speculative history of a black woman radical about whom we know little. And the challenge for me is to try to recreate her interior life. I do the research of a scholar, but I want the work to read with the beauty of a novel. I think the way she ended that clip is exactly what I was trying to articulate at the beginning, um, you know, as I introduced her to you all. She's, she writes with an elegance that, and it feels as if you're reading a novel, but you're reading history, real, really, really rich and, and, and full accounts of what it was like to be um, both enslaved or, or even a woman in this country. And so just please run out <laughs> don't wait <laughs> go copy you a copy of Sadia Hartman's Wayward Lives Beautiful Experiments and also Lose Your Mother the next book is is from an author who I'm reaching for more and more these days because tis the season we're less than 90 days out from an election and I love to um, ground my work in the scholarship of of course Septima Clark um, I love Love me some Septima Clark. I am an official Septima stan, but 
and for more contemporary research, I'm always grab, uh, grasping for a cop- copy of Carol Anderson's uh, either One Person, No Vote, or White Rage. And White Rage, y'all, New York Times bestseller, that's the book you need to read from Carol Anderson. And instead of me going on and bloviating even more, I'm going to let you listen to this clip from Democracy Now! It's an interview, a quick, brief interview with the author of White Rage, Carol Anderson. Here you go. We are broadcasting from Atlanta, Georgia, home to Emory University. And I want to bring into this conversation Carol Anderson, who's chair of Emory's African-American Studies Department. Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of a Racial Divide, just won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. Jurors called it, quote, a searing critique of white America's systematic resistance to American—African-American advancement. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carol Anderson, uh, from that picture I saw of you winning the award, you were rather surprised. But yes. the power of your book uh, has not been lost on anyone. In these last minutes we have together, mm-hmm. can you talk about the significance of what's happening right now? Yeah, what we're seeing right now is the penultimate in white rage. Um, We had a black president. We had African-Americans and Latinos coming out in in scores, voting for the first time, um, participating in this democracy. And the response has been a legislative and judicial, given the Shelby County v. Holder uh, decision by the Supreme Court gutting the Voting Rights Act, a response to, in fact, undermine and undercut that black advancement. What we now have is Donald Trump because it is with voter suppression, given felony disfranchisement in Florida, given the chicanery in North Carolina, the chicanery in um, Wisconsin with all of the voter IDs uh, back and forth, that, in fact, led to this very narrowed victory that put uh, a white nationalist uh, regime in power in the United States. And, And from there, you then get these policies. Um, such as Jeff Sessions, uh, the attorney general, who happened to greet uh, Donald Trump, uh, surrounded by women in antebellum dresses, to give you a sense of of what Make America Great Again means to them. The Sessions Justice Department took down the civil rights page in the Justice Department and put up the standing up for law enforcement page. Yes. And, I mean, and, and again, that is law and order. That is pure dog whistle from the Nixon years, from the Reagan years. And what that has led to has been the mass incarceration of Africans. Americans and Latinos. What it has led to is the undermining of the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65. Uh, what do you say, Professor Anderson, to those—I mean, there are those who say that Donald Trump is an outright racist, white supremacist, white nationalist. There are others who say he's just speaking his mind. He tosses political correctness. What do you say? I say that's a load of hooey. Um, and what I mean by that is he started his campaign by getting the groundwork with the birtherism, which was sheer racism, demanding to see Obama's birth certificate. And then he launches his campaign by saying Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Now, what 
would have normally had led somebody to be distanced from that, where she's saying, no, we want no part of that. In fact, it drew that GOP base in to a depth of fervor where um, the latest polls have shown that what was driving his base was not all of this economic anxiety that pundits talked about, but was the increasing diversity of America, the fact that America was becoming more black and more brown. And so his white base said, we can't have that. We have got to somehow secure the power and the resources of the United States in our hands alone. So how does this all— your book came out before Donald Trump was inaugurated, yes. but it's called White Rage, the Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. Yes. How does this presidency underscore what you have found? It underscores it beautifully, because you see all of this masking in terms of language. So, for instance, let's take the, the health care bill that Trump pushed forward, that the, the one that just passed the House. When you begin to really look at it, it goes after— after women, it goes after the poor, and it goes after black people. It goes after those who are who are getting out of their place. But it's doing so in this really innocuous language of democracy, that this is going to bring about greater options and greater choice, when, in fact, what it's going to do is impoverish and sicken millions upon millions of Americans and have a massive transfer of wealth to the top 400 families under the guise of democracy. That's white rage. I want to thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Professor you. Carol Anderson is chair of the African-American Studies Department at Emory University, and she is author of the book um, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, which just won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Criticism. It's just the, the book that keeps on giving uh, the author that we don't deserve, Carol Anderson. Please make sure you run out and get you a copy of White Rage. Um, I almost wanted to make that my September uh, book club selection. And for those who don't know, I've recently launched a book club. It is called the Historically Accurate Anti-Racist Book Club for Charleston. Yes, it's intentionally wordy, uh, but um, I wanted to just be very, um, I guess, in your face, very blatant about the objectives of my book club, which is to um, to confront this ahistorical representation of our past that we presented with here and what folks have coined or if I've coined and a lot of people have called um, Confederate Disneyland. It, it's just a, a place, Charleston and its tourism industry and even the efforts by our local preservation and historical societies have largely worked hard to preserve a version of our history um, that excludes the black and Gullah Geechee and indigenous perspective. Um, and it just completely erases our experience. And so my book club uh, aims to right that wrong uh, and bring some more historical accuracy as well as uh, some some very radical organizing and radical thought and theory into the lexicon, so to speak. Um, so that brings me to a very important book that actually helped jumpstart uh, my journey as I as I relocated here just a, less than a year after I relocated to Charleston from the Philadelphia metro area, you know, the um, the Mother Emanuel massacre occurred. And um, I remember where I was when I saw the news. I didn't know it happened the previous night, but I remember I was up very, very early and I was someplace where there was a television screen on and I'm like, well, why, why are there so many cops on 
Calhoun, why? What's that? What happened at this church? I thought it was a fire initially because of all of the first responders and the siren or the the flashing lights on the screen, and I couldn't quite understand. And as the day went by, I I still couldn't understand. Wait, wait, what happened at the church? I literally was stunned, and it reminded me of what happened. Um, um, to me, uh, when nine eleven struck, right? You always remember where you were when significant moments in history have occurred. And like with nine eleven, I was my head was just tilted upward, staring at a screen, not able to compute what I was looking at. And um, needless to say, that that bewilderment has actually stuck with me. I still don't understand how the roof massacre occurred. Um, But to help me grapple with the trauma that is witnessing white supremacy and and a white nationalist, uh, you know, come into your city and disrupt not just your peace, but destroy to try to destroy lives and and communities. Um, How I grapple with that is through this research, is through this reading. It helps me understand how we got here as an American collective. Um, because Dylan Roof is not an outlier. He's not a lone wolf. He's actually one of very, very many. Uh, and we need to understand that. And I think a book like the Charleston Syllabus can help you understand that. And that's the next book. So um, I'm recommending the Charleston Syllabus. It is edited by three scholars. And again, I wanted to make today's episode. I wanted this episode to focus on the scholarship of black women writers um, however, uh, the Charleston syllabus is co-edited by, um, <clears throat> by you know, by three people. So it's Keisha Blaine, Keisha N. Blaine, who you will hear from in this next audio excerpt, um, Kadada E. Williams, and also Chad Williams. And you'll hear from Chad as well. So the next clip is very brief, but you'll hear from bo- uh, from two of the three editors, um, Chad Williams and Keisha N. Blaine. Uh, and I just want you to listen to how or why they created the Charleston syllabus. Take a listen. On Friday, June 19th, uh, just two days after the tragic Charleston shooting took place, I was on Twitter that evening and uh, Chad Williams, who's an associate professor at Brandeis University, he started tweeting out um, just various thoughts, you know, and expressing some of his some of his frustrations about the shooting. There was so much uh, ignorance and misinformation uh, surrounding what had happened in Charleston, but also how uh, the massacre was being talked about uh, in the mainstream uh, media, but also just in uh, more informal conversations uh, as well. The response has been astonishing. Truly inspirational, uh, just the, the feedback that we were getting and the wide variety of people that were participating uh, in the conversation were contributing uh, to this growing resource. Uh, and some of the main contributors were librarians. One of the librarians who I started communicating with on Twitter, you know, suggested connecting it to WorldCat and I thought that makes so much sense teachers, educators at various uh, levels uh, from elementary school all the way up to uh, the university level, really uh, expressing their their gratitude uh, for having a resource like this that they could uh, potentially use uh, in the classroom. The way that people came together behind the syllabus, that to me uh, is a testament uh, to the, the power of collaboration.
I want to read a, a portion of the back of the book um, and also want to give you the complete title of the book. It's uh, Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, and Racial Violence. And again, it's uh, co-edited by Chad Williams, who you heard from, Kadada E. Williams, and Keisha N. Blaine, who you also heard from in that previous audio excerpt. Um, the back of the book reads as follows. Immediately after the mass killings at Emanuel AME Church on June 17, 2015, in Charleston, South Carolina, social media exploded with attempts to make sense of the event. The Twitter hashtag, Charleston Syllabus, quickly emerged as a central resource for help in learning how the tragedy fit into the tumultuous history of race relations, not only in the United States, but globally. This reader collects some of the best writings to be recommended and debated using the Charleston Syllabus hashtag, featuring a variety of texts such as songs, poems, historical documents, op-eds, and excerpts from books and journals the Charleston Syllabus is a tool for understanding the roots of American systemic racism, white privilege, the uses and abuses of the Confederate flag and its ideals, the black church as a foundation for civil rights activity, and much more. So um, I encourage you all to go pick up a copy of Charleston Syllabus, Readings on Race, Racism, and Racial Violence. It is, and I want to underscore this, I want to underline this. I want to shout this. This is the September pick for my book club. So please, if you're interested in joining us, even if you just want to listen, be a fly on the wall, you want to listen to this conversation, please, please go pick up Charleston Syllabus. Um, You'll find out more information in the description of this show, the show notes on where you can find this book. All right. The uh, next book, the last book um, is one that literally just arrived in the mail uh just a few days ago actually and it's called the um it's called a black woman's history of the united states and i'm obsessed i am so ready the back of the book includes like those like really flattering complimentary blurbs from like some of the best known names (laughs) in uh like in in literature literature uh including ibram x kendi uh and someone from the stage anika noni rose which who is a, a tony award winning performance artist, actor, producer, singer. Um, You also have a blurb from Charlene Carruthers on the back of the book. And um, also Keisha M. Blaine, who we just heard from. She actually wrote an an amazing little blurb about this book. Um, This book is written by, and I'm so sorry I didn't start with the authors. Um, The book is written by Dr. Dana Ramey Berry and Callie Nicole Gross. And I'm going to include an excerpt from an interview. As I mentioned and so many other times, uh, I lived in Philly for about 10 years uh, or in the Philly metro area. So I still stream a lot of WHYY, um, their local public radio programs, including Radio Times with Marty Moscoane. I love Marty Moscoane um, and Terry Gross, but I love Radio Times. So I was so like so happy in February when I heard uh, this interview. I, I was just streaming you know, Radio Times, and I heard about this book, and I'm like, whoa, 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 I got to get my hands on this. So here is a a brief excerpt from a conversation with the authors of A Black Women's History of the United States and host of uh, Radio Times, Marty Moscowain. Take a listen. 
I'm Marty Moscow, and welcome to Radio Times. I learned a lot reading A Black Women's History of the United States by Dinah Ramey Berry and Callie Nicole Gross. For instance, in 1600, explorer Isabel de Olvera was the first black woman to set foot in what would become America, and this was well before the Atlantic slave trade. Belinda Sutton sued the heirs of her enslaver to demand the freedom that she had been promised. And she was not the only enslaved woman to challenge the institution of slavery in court. More recently, Therese Patricia Okumo was arrested after scaling the base of the Statue of Liberty in 2018 to protest President Trump's policy of separating migrant children from their parents seeking asylum. This book is part of the Revisioning American History series by Beacon Press, documenting 400 years of activism by unsung and unknown African-American women, as well as more well-known civil rights champions like Congresswoman Shirley Chisholm. This is our topic for today's Radio Times, and let me introduce our two guests. And here with us in our Philadelphia studios is Callie Nicole Gross. She is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of History at Rutgers University. And Callie, nice to have you with us on Radio Times. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And joining us from the studios of KUT in Austin, Texas, is Dinah Ramey Berry. She's Professor of History and American History at the University of Texas at Austin, also Associate Dean of the Graduate School. And Dinah, nice to have you with us on Radio Times as well. Thanks. You're very welcome. Let me start with you, Callie, only because we kind of started our conversation before going on the air. You both write in this book that black women's relationship to the United States is both complex and paradoxical. Can you flesh that out for us? Right. So one of the things that Dinah and I really worked to stress was both the ways that black women had been sort of critical to the development of the country in terms of their labor, their offspring, in sort of enabling the U.S. to amass the kind of wealth that it does to develop. At the same time, we also talk about the hardship and the toll that that extraction takes. So the way that black women are also maligned in terms, at the same time that the U.S. sort of lives off of black women's labors and their offspring, they also are sort of maligned as being immoral, unchaste, and criminal. So that's sort of the nature of the complexity. At the same time, though, you also see how black women manage to cleave out sort of a life for themselves in spite of some incredible obstacles, which I think is a testament to sort of this kind of enduring spirit and legacy, but also it demonstrates sort of the power that they have to collectively organize Mm. um, and to continue to resist and to really demand sort of justice and equality. I'm curious, Diana, whether you think we are at a at a an important um, crossroads here, in that in it that we're beginning to understand some of this history. I was also, as I was reading your book, thinking of Michelle Obama. You know, we've had the the first black first lady in this country. How this gets all wrapped up in our history? One thing I think that Kelly and I wanted to do was to show the larger historical trajectory of people like Michelle Obama and a number of other women that people may have never heard of. And I think because of the media attention on black girls and black womanhood that we've received in the last few years, this book is coming out at a time where we can put all that into context. I really hope you were able to find uh, something useful from this episode. I'm sure you did because um, of the six works six and a half, I believe, works that I've mentioned, um, all of them are just so critical um, to to helping us all like unpack 
a lot of the internalized white supremacy that we all contend with. But for my white listeners, those who have sought my counsel, uh, largely in part uh, because they were moved by the movement for black lives that was reinvigorated uh, following the death of George Floyd and and the um, the push for justice for Breonna Taylor. If you've come to my page or my content or have reached out to me personally to help yourself, uh, I guess, help to unlearn some of the internalized racist issues or values that you may have, um, I, I would like to offer that you can't read these books and be absolved or, or be cured. Uh, it's a lifelong journey. It doesn't end. And um, I know that's not that's not necessarily comforting, but it's the reality. And you can't read this book and then become, I guess, <laughs> more wise or sage when it comes to racism and systemic oppression. Um, these books only help you begin your journey toward unpacking your oppressive tendencies. The other thing I'd like for this episode to encourage is to encourage you to change up, uh, change your canon. If you're an educator, if you're, if you're educating your children, your family, um, you know, if you have a book club of your own, uh, if, if you're in social circles and you only suggest or refer to or read white male scholarship, I'm challenging you right now to introduce more queer voices, more black and indigenous and Latinx perspectives, the perspective of the immigrant, the perspective of the black immigrant. Um, read read books that are not things that you would normally or typically reach for. Reach outside of what you've been coached and conditioned to think of as, I guess, the <laughs> the elite, you know, top tier, respected you're Eurocentric, you know, dismiss all of that, right? Complicate your relationship with the history you've been presented with your entire life and introduce some more radical, amazing voices into your, into your repertoire, right? So that that's what I suggest. I also suggest you join my book club. Uh, we had over 700 responses to the book club and currently we have, well, uh, I would say, over 200 tickets sold for our August 18th virtual meetup, which will include a conversation with the authors of Denmark VC's Garden. Denmark VC's Garden is the August book club selection. And so I'm so excited to announce that um, both Ethan and Blaine, the authors of Denmark VC's Garden, will be in attendance to help. They've reached out and they have expressed their willingness to be a part of the book club. And I am just completely just enamored and happy and can't wait to have this virtual discussion uh, please check out the notes in the description of this show for more details on how you can join our book club community uh, but until next time y'all please stay masked up wash your hands stay home if you can be safe and to all my black people all my Gullah Geechee people out there y'all stay black <laughs>